Our first reading is taken from Revelation uh, chapter 21 on page 1249. Could you turn to it, please? Page 1249, Revelation chapter 21. And I'll be reading to verse 8. Somebody once said, if you're going to be a reader, don't start until the rustling has stopped. Let's read. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. The second reading is on page 1180. 1180, Philippians 3, verses 12 to 21. Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. All of us, then, who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will 
excuse me, so that they will be like his glorious body. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you very much. Would you have that passage in front of you? It's on page 1180. It would be really helpful. As we look at it, running for the tape, our series in Philippians, Paul's letter to the Philippians. And I'm going to begin this morning by asking you, what is it that drives you? What gets you up in the morning? Is it your job, a hobby, your friends, your family? Yes, I know those with small children will say, we know very easily who it is who gets us up early in the morning. But you can be sure that something or someone will be driving you. Now, the Apostle Paul was, it would have to be admitted, a driven man. And he wrote the letter to the Philippians uh, in our sermon series we're looking at while in prison under house arrest in Rome. He was probably in his early 60s on the home straight. We're moving to home close in Oxford, and I think we've called again to call it the home straight. But what drove him? Well, have a look at verse 7. Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Paul was driven by nothing less than the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. This was the man who had set out to persecute, even to kill Christians, who described himself, as we saw a few weeks ago, as a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent man, and the worst of sinners. So consider the energy and passion with which Paul now speaks. He was not aimlessly wandering around, wanting to put his feet up, enjoying the occasional round of golf, tending his roses. No, he was on fire for Christ. Christ was everything to him, and the death of Christ was central to his teaching. The fact that Christ had died in his place for his sins was a truth that gripped him. So if you are a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, I'm going to ask you this question as I ask myself. Are you, am I, gripped by the fact that Christ loves you, loves me, and died in our place? Do you have that same energy and passion for Christ that Paul did? Now, recently, and I think it's God's sense of humor, I've been surrounded by super-fit colleagues. John Ash, a previous curate, ran in Ironman, a fierce race involving running, cycling, and swimming. And Guy, our curate, and his wife, Mary Jane, love nothing better than to do a quick marathon. Now, all of these require discipline and training. And athletics is an image that Paul uses here and elsewhere in his letters. He describes the Christian life in terms of a race, where rather than competing with one another, we encourage each other in our particular and individual race. And, of course, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. Now, a runner needs all the right equipment, and we need the advice of a good coach. What is Paul's advice for us Christians in our race of life. How can we share his energy and his passion for Christ? Well, here's the first thing, it seems to me. Travel light. Travel light. Don't let anything drag you down, especially things from your past. 
As Paul says, look at verse 13, one thing I do, forgetting what is behind. Now, Paul's past was actually very impressive, and you can see what it involved if you look at your eyes from uh, verses 4 to 7. He had status, privilege, and education. He went to Duke University, Harvard, and Yale all at the same time. Now, the world places a very high value on such things, but Paul writes shockingly that all the advantages and achievements others would put in the profit column of life's balance sheet he considered to be garbage, to be placed in the loss column. And the word garbage he uses is very strong. It actually means dung or manure. So pride in our family background or achievement can hold us back if it blinds us to our need of a savior, because such an attitude will lead to self-dependence and even possibly arrogance. A friend of ours, a fine committed Christian, saw that danger. He had inherited a large but run-down estate, and it took years to put it running in the right direction. And he described the burden of that, of that as having to rid himself of his family's household gods. His family's household gods. What are your family's household gods that compete with the real God, the living God? And then we can be held back by past failure and guilt. I remember seeing a woman hovering outside my last church in the north of England, so I encouraged her to join us. I couldn't. I'm not good enough, she said. And I said, of course, none of us is good enough. Do join us. But she wouldn't. It's easy to live so much in the past with a life of regret and the if-onlys that we find it difficult to move forward. If only I hadn't said that, done that. If only I had said that and done the other. Or we may be so deeply wounded by things said or done to us by others or by life's hardships that, again, we can't move on. We can't move forward. John Greenleaf Whittier wrote these very haunting words. For all the sad words of tongue or pen, the saddest are these. It might have been. One of the most common hindrances is the temptation to worship money and success. Neither of them is wrong in themselves, do you hear me? It's only our attitude towards them. So, contrary to popular belief, the Bible does not say money is the root of all evil. What does it say? The love of money is the root of evil. The desire for wealth and success can enslave us, so we get on a treadmill that causes us to work faster and more furiously. And very sadly, in my time as vicar here, I've seen many sacrifice friendships, family life, even health, on that altar of money and success. And tragically, it's only when such people reach the end of their lives that they see things as they really are. As someone once said, no one on their deathbed said, oh, I do wish I'd spent more time in the office. If you're stuck in the past, weighed down by the if-onlys and the might-have-beens, 
If you've been chasing after wealth and success on a treadmill that will get you nowhere, if there is sin in your life, then God says to you through Paul, stop. Get rid of it. Throw it off. Don't allow any of these things to hold you back in your race of life. For you must travel light. Now, the second piece of advice Paul would give us is this. Go flat out and keep going. So in verse 13, he writes, One thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on. Back to athletics again. For when Paul writes straining towards, he's using a Greek word to describe a runner stretching out to the tape. He's literally describing the Christian who's going flat out for the finishing tape, which involves struggle and action. And there's no room for spiritual complacency. Paul is not finished yet. Have a look back to verses 10 and 11. Now, J.B. Phillips translates his words in verse 10 like this. How changed are my ambitions? Now I long to know Christ and the power shown by his resurrection. Now I long to share his sufferings, even to die as he did, so that I too may attain the resurrection of the dead. Now, in our versions in the Bible in verse 11, when Paul uses the word somehow, he's not saying he's in any way doubting he would rise from the dead, but he was not sure how the road to that certainty would work out, how many days he had left on earth, whether the road would be rough or smooth. But I wonder if you notice the kick in the second part of verse 10. We all love the first part, wanting to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, but not what follows, and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Now, all marathon runners know about a feature of the race that happens about halfway through. It's called the wall. It's basically when the body, experiencing extreme stress and pain, screams out, stop, stop. The mind has to take over and say, I've trained. I'm ready. I can do it. It's a real battle. Now, Jesus was completely upfront with his disciples that they shouldn't be surprised at the difficulties and the cost that would come from following him. So in John 16, we read, in this world, you will have trouble, not might, will, and went on, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So even after we have thrown off the past, we can hit the wall, for there is a cost in being a disciple today. In England, in London, you're accused of being a God-botherer, weak-minded. It may stop you getting promotion, being left out of some friendship circles because of your Christian faith. Never forget that in some parts of the world, never mind that, it may mean losing your liberty, your freedom, or even your life just for acknowledging Jesus as your Lord. And that has been the case throughout church history. Look at the front of Westminster Abbey. Do you know what's on the front of Westminster Abbey? They're the martyrs of the 20th century in every continent. It's still going on. They're just waking up to it. 
the persecution of Christians. So if you're dissatisfied with your relationship with God, if you're spiritually restless, welcome it. These are signs that you're spiritually hungry. Don't stop there. Look at verses 12 and 14. The two words repeated in each is press on. Despite the past, despite the cost, says Paul, keep going. Don't stop. That's what I want to say to you this morning. That's what I want to say to St. Michael's. What did Charles say? He said, keep going and don't stop as followers of Jesus. The writer to the Hebrews encourages us to run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. Gosh, there's a word we don't use often. Perseverance, it's keeping going. On an athletics track, there are lanes marked out. Each runner has their own lane. Now, God has marked out a lane for every one of us to run in, a purpose for our life. Now, Paul had a particular God-given lane or purpose, and that was dramatically revealed when God stopped him in his tracks on the road to Damascus. Look at verse 12. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. What was his purpose? It was to bring the gospel to the non-Jewish world. And he was faithful to that calling because as a result of his perseverance and in the face of great cost, Here we are, in St. Michael's, this morning. We are his great, 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 great grandchildren in faith. Now, every one of us has a lane to run in. Well, you may be in the finance industry, law, politics, teaching, being at home with small children, retired from paid employment. The lane will be different for each of us, but as Christians, we all have the same general purpose. Your purpose is to be what Paul describes in chapter 2, verse 15, as children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. Your stars. Well, I'm not sure what exactly that will look like for you though I can guess what it means generally. You keep your word even when it's inconvenient. You tell the truth, though it's costly. You live transparently so there are no dark corners. You are compassionate and caring about those over whom you have responsibility. And you will never be ashamed to admit that you are a disciple of Jesus when called to account. And in addition, you'll have a deep compassion for the lost. Look at verses 18 and 19. For as I've often told you before, and I'll tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. All those who you know who reject Christ, who refuse to take seriously what you say about him, are living as enemies of the cross the one symbol and sign of God reaching out in love, compassion, forgiveness, grace. And he weeps for it. I was at a talk in a city church when an Australian pastor wept over London. 
living as an enemy of Christ. It's desperate. And it's every Christian's purpose to pray for and to take opportunity to speak about Jesus whenever you can. Because people are lost. They're given no guide, no compass. Theories which we know don't work. We've had our church, our history to to measure everything. In my time, Marxism, communism... Desperate, desperate millions killed. Do we know how many were killed in China? How many were killed under Stalin? But God turned even Paul round. Nobody's beyond possibility. I got into my first Christian camp on the train to go down to it, and a friend I was at school with said, Good heavens, Charles, what are you doing here? My wife, Tricia, has a friend who says, I'm on my way to heaven. I want to take as many people with me as I can. What a great purpose to have, one that will really help you to keep going. So in the Christian race of life, Paul advocates we should travel light, go flat out, and keep going. And finally, thirdly, fix our eyes on the prize. Fix our eyes on the prize, verse 14. I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. Verses 20 and 21, our citizenship is in heaven. We eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that we will be like his glorious body. Well, if you've been watching the political race to be the next prime minister, it's almost been impossible to avoid it. You will have heard one candidate say that he was in it to win it. In it to win it. Christianity is a religion with a goal or a prize. Christians are on a journey with a clear destination. That goal, that prize is heaven. We too are in it to win it. A sports psychologist described the importance of visualization. He gets the athletes to close their eyes to picture the prize they're aiming for, that moment on the Olympics podium when they are the gold medal winner. Now, in the Bible, God helps us to visualize the ultimate prize. But before you do that, reflect on the things in this world that you find very hard to accept. Well, the list would be endless, wouldn't it? Man's inhumanity to man. Illness. Tragic accidents. Injustice. The innocent suffering of children in wars. And finally, the inescapable fact of death. Someone once said, in life only two things are certain, death and taxes. Now, if you turn to our other reading from Revelation 21, it's on page 1249, you will see that heaven will be a place, not merely a state of being. And it's a place where there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. And verse 8, there will be no more sin in heaven either. You cannot mix oil and water. All the things that make our world a broken world will be banished forever. We'll have new bodies, 
as we've seen in verse 21, when Christ will transform our earthly bodies to be like his. And we will know that at long last we are truly home. Alessandra was sort of saying that about us as a church. We are her church home. We know her. We've known her for years. You can relax. We will no longer be foreigners living abroad when we're in heaven. And that prize and that thought of it has motivated countless men and women down the centuries to run flat out to the finishing tape and so complete their race. Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna, was arrested in AD 155 during a time of persecution. And he was encouraged to reject Christ and to say, Caesar is Lord and to offer incense on Caesar's altar, a very small thing you might think. But he refused. He famously replied, 86 years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then could I blaspheme my king who saved me? And he was martyred for his faith in Jesus. Now, the thought of heaven makes a huge difference to how we live our lives. When speaking about retirement, American pastor John Piper describes how if you don't believe in heaven, you'll pack in as much fun and leisure as you can before you die. But he goes on, what a strange reward for a Christian to set his sight on years of leisure, listen to this, while living in the midst of the last days of infinite consequence for millions of people who need Christ. He goes on, what a tragic way to finish the last mile before entering the presence of the king who finished his last mile so differently. Surely we want to finish well. Then to be driven as Paul was, we need to fix our eyes on the prize, embrace the adventure of trusting yourself again into the hands of Almighty God. Looking back over the speakers we've had, uh, one of the most inspiration at St. Michael's was Simon Gillibo. Uh, he lived flat out for Christ, still does, spending many years in Burundi, uh, often facing death, yet fearlessly preaching the gospel as well as bringing practical help. And in his book, Fear for, for What It's Worth, he challenges in these words. How far is too far? When Jesus stretched out his arms on the cross and went that far, do you want the adventure of living or would you prefer the safety of existing? Aren't you itching for a deeper and more raw expression of following Jesus? Aren't we meant to be dangerous people? wide-eyed radicals, dreamers of the day. It doesn't matter how old you are. Let us, like Paul, like Simon Gillibo, live flat out for Christ till the end of our race, the end of our days. I'm planning to do that. Will you join me? Let's pray.